carceral studies conversations, a series that seeks to understand and illuminate the carceral state's past and present so as to deconstruct these complex systems that structure society and perpetuate harm. I and my guest today are both recording from the traditional lands of the Cato Nation and the Wichita and affiliated tribes, and it was also part of the Muscogee Creek and Seminole Nations. My guest today, who I'm very excited to be talking to, is Dr. Connie Chapel, who is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Oklahoma. She does research on families in crime, gender in crime, child abuse and neglect, and the consequences of incarceration for children, youth, and adults. She has published research in outlets such as Justice Quarterly, Social Science Research, Deviant Behavior, and the Journal of Criminal Justice. Thank you for, so much for being with us today, Dr. Chapel. I'm glad to be here. Thanks, Alex. Good. So let's just jump straight in with a broad question. How does your research um, and the people you look at broaden our vision of who's affected by the carceral state? Awesome. I do. I am both a quantitative and qualitative social scientist. So I do statistical modeling, and then I also do observational and interview studies. So I'll sort of reference my own work and then the knowledge that I have of the field. Where I have focused my research is really on um, the intersection between um, how coming into contact with the criminal justice system, and I know you had a question about what that means. And so when I talk about criminal justice contact, I mean um, uh, being stopped by the police, uh, being arrested, being processed, uh, jailed, sentencing courts, all the way through incarceration and re-entry into the community. We know at every one of those points in the in the stage in the process of the criminal justice system, we know that there can be associated financial trauma, there can be associated emotional trauma, there can be... Um, negative effects to individuals' families, uh, work, uh, their bank account <laughs> many times. Um, that's something that we don't, we didn't know a lot about until about five to six years ago was just how much um, the effect of fees and fines and these kind of legal financial penalties were associated with different stages of the formal cr criminal justice system, and it affects people a lot. They come out of um, sometimes being arrested and detained with, you know, huge bills. If their car was impounded, if they lost work, if uh, they missed a child support payment, if they missed a rent payment um, or a credit card payment, any of those kind of things could be triggered just from um, being taken into custody. So, so, so it's not just incarceration. It used to be that we, we really just focused on how negative, what the negative effects of incarceration are for individuals and families and kids. Um, but now we know that it's not just incarceration. It's not just being, um, you know, in prison or jail, that it's all different stages and it's the system of surveillance many times. Um, that really affects people emotionally and financially. So in my research, what I have looked at is how um, parental behaviors, including parental criminal behavior, substance use, um, and parental incarceration as, as different kind of negative 
parental behaviors, also uh, child abuse and neglect, um, how that really interferes with with healthy development of, of children and youth and kind of puts them on a path um, of delinquency and juvenile justice contact, of difficulties with peers, difficulties um, in school. Uh, and then some of the more recent stuff is just starting to look at some health outcomes of juveniles who have uh, either their parents have been involved in the juvenile justice system or their parents. I mean, their parents are themselves. They've been involved in either the criminal justice system or the juvenile justice system. Wow, that's really interesting. There's a lot I want to follow up on there. Um, and so we'll first first go before sort of getting to these negative health outcomes. Um, you mentioned that there are a lot of obviously adverse effects, especially financial. And you mentioned the emotional effect of surveillance. Um, I assume that's both on the person surveilled and their family. Can you speak more to the process of surveillance and then the effects? Absolutely. Um, so anytime you enter into the formal, formal criminal justice system, you're going to be under surveillance. So anytime that you have been arrested, you are entered into their system, as it were, until you have that cleared, until you've paid your fee or fine, until you've had your charges dismissed. Um, but the further along that you get along the criminal justice system process, the more surveillance that you're going to have. So many times in, in prior epic, you know, um, epics of criminal justice research, we thought that probation was less deleterious than um, incarceration in terms of outcomes. But we're finding now that there are negative outcomes even associated with probation. And that has to do with surveillance. And that has to do with either drug testing surveillance, financial surveillance. So if you um, get behind on paying your legal fees, those are not forgivable. You can't declare bankruptcy on your legal fees. They, the only person who can discharge your legal fees is a judge. And so if you get behind in that, you can get um, a bench warrant. And so you can have a um, basically a return to jail um, due to failure to pay. So getting behind. So and, and people know this. And if they don't know it, they find out very quickly and so the emotional toll of being watched all the time, I think, is tremendous. And individuals, um, adults mention this. And then I think we're starting to see in the research literature that kids are starting to pick up on this, um, their le the level of parental stress. Um, a lot of times it's associated with financial parental stress because many uh, individuals, adults who go to prison oftentimes... Um, are underemployed or um, have kind of unstable work histories. And so these are significant financial penalties to them. And so it causes significant stress to these families. And even juveniles, we talked about juveniles. I mean, juveniles don't get off scot-free when they get released from a juvenile justice institution. They're followed too. And, you know, how they um, get surveyed or surveilled is under education is through schools and through their probation officers. So that, that brings up an interesting issue. How is, I mean, not there's obviously the direct surveillance within schools, but how are schools directly implicated in these traumas associated with um, or the afterlife of, of criminal justice contacts? Yeah, that's awesome. That's an excellent question. 
Um, Jerry Flores wrote a book in, I think, 2018. He's a sociologist um, at the University of Toronto now, but he did an ethnographic um, project in Southern California looking at how inextricably linked juvenile justice is with these alternative schools that kids kind of step down into in the communities and the incredible high, incredibly high rate of surveillance that boys and girls were experiencing within the school. So, so in some of the alternative schools and in the school within the juvenile justice facility, he's, uh, he witnessed and the students reported uh, their probation officers are sitting in their classrooms. And so um, sassing a teacher or being disrespectful, which is a relatively common high school occurrence, could lead to them being um, put back into secure confinement within the juvenile justice institution, basically restarting. They're not called sentences, but they're adjudication in juvenile justice. And then when they were released to their community schools, not the alternative or step-down schools, they oftentimes felt these girls um, and some of the boys, but the research was really focused on the girls, really felt like there was a lot of stigma attached to them. Everybody knew that they had come from a juvenile justice institution. And then there is some research that indicates that kids whose parents have been incarcerated, especially if their mother has been incarcerated, um, feel quite a bit of stigma at school, um, sometimes through teachers. So because it's a lot of times it's the mother who's making the parent-teacher conferences and checking in with the homework and, and getting the kids to school. Um, and so when the mother is gone, that oftentimes raises red flags for, um, for school officials, whether that's accurate or not. Um, and so there is some research that indicates that there is significant stigma associated with kids um, in particular who have mothers who've been incarcerated. So yeah, schools can kind of um, increase the surveillance and increase the stigmatizing process. I mean, unwittingly, schools are just trying to get by too, but, um, but these processes can be continued by educational institutions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, with that, and especially when you're focusing on, or the research is focused on motherhood and especially uh, this gendered aspect of the system, can you speak to how gender is such a critical factor in this um, and in adverse outcomes? Yeah, absolutely. So early on in my career, I focused a lot on gender differences in delinquency and gender differences in a really strong individual level, level predictor of delinquency called self-control, which is basically inability to, or the ability to curb impulsivity. And what we see is that whether we're talking about sex gap in delinquency or we're talking about the sex gap or the gender gap, either one, um, in self-control, we see that boys have significantly lower levels of self-control and they have significantly higher rates of delinquency. And um, this is true across the life course. This is true in early childhood. This is true in middle adolescence when crime in gener general peaks um, for all of us. Crime in general peaks around age 16 to 17 in terms of our criminal commission, commit committing crimes. But um, so when looking at that, some of that is a function of families. Um, boys tend to be supervised less than girls. Uh, girls tend to be kept closer to home. Um, 
the, a huge component of gender differences in delinquent behavior in adolescence is attributed to gender differences in self-control. And some of the gender differences in self-control have to do with some gendered socialization expectations about allowing negative behavior for boys to continue in ways that we don't allow some of that negative behavior for girls to continue. So, you know, acting rambunctious or um, being physical with your friends, you know, we might, we might sort of clamp down on that earlier and, and, and more frequently for girls because it doesn't fit gender role ideology about wild, you know, crazy active girls, but we don't for boys. We just say, oh, boys are going to be boys. And so boys are not necessarily getting those, um, getting those external breaks on their behavior at as many points in the, in childhood as girls are. Plus we've romanticized masculinity to include a lot of this sort of physical risk-taking and um, that uh, boys are more adventurous than girls and we allow boys to have a lot more physical freedom with their bodies and in the world. And all of those things, while it might be a lot more fun for boys, they don't necessarily instill high levels of self-control. So the boys are not getting the lessons to curb impulsivity. They're not getting the lessons um, to the rate that girls are of, of caring about how your behavior impacts other people negatively, um, sort of that tenacity and diligence and sticking to stuff despite it being really tough and boring or difficult. So a lot of the gender differences um, in, in criminal behavior a lot of that can be uh, attributed to gender differences in self-control and then through some external controls too, like parental supervision or supervision from teachers or um, girls tend to be sort of just kept closer to the home and kept under closer watch by lots of different agents, you know, by schools, by other parents, by their parents, um, by community members. And in terms of incarceration, it's interesting um, how the yeah. In terms of sorry, in terms of incarceration, um, we know that women go to prison and jail for they go to prison and jail for all the same crimes as men men do, but they are much more likely than men are to go to prison um, for lower level offenses for nonviolent offenses, a lot of which are drug possession offenses. That's not necessarily true of men who go to jail and prison. Is the is the research on why there's that difference in sentencing or punishment for various crimes? It tends to be when men are engaged in the low-level offenses like possession, they're also um, engaged in a more serious offense at the same time, and that's the serious offense that's, that's getting the police um, attention, like a robbery or uh, you know, a high dollar burglary or a high dollar theft or drug selling and trafficking. And a lot of times the women who are sent to jail and prison and jail serves a one year maximum. You can only serve a one year in a jail, supposedly, although that's violated all the time. Beyond that, um, most felony offenses are served in prisons. So, um, but they were oftentimes caught 
with a boyfriend, a husband, a male acquaintance. And so they were, so it's not that police are looking for low-level female drug users to arrest and round up. It's that a lot of times they're caught in possession or maybe in possession with a handgun or, you know, if they're holding for their, their boyfriend or husband when their boyfriend gets picked up. And then many of these women have minor children and their kids were present. So then they get child endangerment charges um, added to their sort of uh, sentencing portfolio. So a lot of times these are domestic situations where they're involved with a criminal man, either dating or living together or married, um, and he gets popped for something serious, and then she gets picked up too, usually because there's children in the household. Interesting. That then has a negative effect on the child who's both parents at least spend some time yeah. in the criminal legal system. Yep, yep. Or their stepdad or their mom's boyfriend who they've come to know who may be contributing, you know, he might be criminally involved, but he might also really be contributing to the family economy. And now that's gone. So, and now they have to live with relatives or go into the formal child welfare system. And, you know, that's incredibly disruptive to kids' lives. Circling back then to, to children and sort of children delinquency, you mentioned that 16 to 17 is sort of the age around peak criminal commission. Is that because of development? Is that because of laws? Is that because of life stages? Where does that come from? Yeah, it's kind of a black box. It's something that we call in criminology a criminological fact because it doesn't seem to be explained by anything because people who have no contact with the criminal justice system start desisting after age 16 to 17. <laughs> Boys desist at 16 to 17. Girls start desisting at 16 to 17. Kids in China start desisting at age 16 to 17. Kids in the U.S., kids in France, kids 100 years ago. It's this, it has, it has to do with maturation. It has to do with um, brain maturation. Uh, you know, the development of empathy, the development of, of um, our regulatory brain systems that, that regulate impulsivity and forward thinking and, and a conscience, all of that starts to really kick into high gear in middle to late adolescence. So developmentally, biologically, kids start to develop better breaks on their behavior by age 16 to 17. So they all start to just sort of naturally decline, but we see this decline in the most serious juvenile offender and the least serious juvenile offender. So it's hard to, it's hard to pinpoint. Yeah. What it is. People have been trying to, to explain why crime peaks in early to in mid adolescence and then starts declining. It's a bell curve. It's called the age crime curve. And it's a bell curve. And people have been trying to explain this for 50 years or more. And we haven't, haven't quite figured it out. We've ruled out a lot of things that don't explain it, like criminal justice involvement or legal ramifications. That doesn't matter. We see the decline in people that have no criminal justice contact who haven't really gotten any penalties for their actions. That's so interesting. Is, is there some kind of, is there a correlation between if, someone's parents, mother, father, 
guardian has been incarcerated or had a criminal justice contact between them then having a criminal justice contact? Oh, absolutely. It's really, it's very strong. And um, one of the strongest predictors of a youth's juvenile justice contact is if their parents have had criminal justice contact. One of the strongest predictors of adult criminal justice contact is if you've had juvenile justice contact. Um, So we see this big time in families where we see multiple generations and it's not just two generations. It could be two, three, even four generations. And where we're going with that research right now, where the field is going that I think is in a much more helpful way in the nineties and early two thousands, there was a lot of emphasis on biological factors and inherited risk and genetics. And I, I just don't think that took us anywhere that ended up long-term being really beneficial for the field. And now what we're seeing instead is, you know, looking at these constellations of traumatic events that have happened in individual people's lives. And so we've been using this schematic called um, adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. That is kind of a short cut for uh, trauma, childhood trauma. And these are things like child maltreatment, Um, witnessing parental violence, like intimate violence between your parents, uh, parental death or divorce, parental incarceration, mental health problems of their their parents, and substance abuse problems of their parents. So this is this idea of these adverse childhood experiences was developed in the late 1990s. And what we see is that um, these are really generational and intergenerational is that uh, when we look back and we look at the kids who are involved in juvenile justice or the child welfare system, their parents are incredibly traumatized. Their parents have had histories of child abuse, maltreatment, witnessing violence, being uh, involved in intimate violence, having substance abuse and untreated mental health problems. So, and they got that from the grandparents. So, and the grandparents had trauma. So. We, you know, and this also really intersects with poverty because a lot of mental health and substance abuse treatment options are private, they're expensive, they're hard to get into, Um, you know, so that just leaves a whole swath of communities unable to access resources to, to heal some of this trauma so that they can be more effective parents um, for generations to come. That's so interesting. So are, are ACE scores or these ACE tests being used in the child welfare system or schools or anything to sort of mitigate or stave off criminal justice contacts? Absolutely. I mean, this is really interesting multidisciplinary work that's been going on in the last um, 20 years here. But especially for criminology, we've seen it picked up pick up a lot in the last 10 years. And so you hear of programs called trauma-informed schools or trauma-informed juvenile justice or trauma-informed probation services or trauma-informed correctional services. So lots of different agencies from child welfare to education to substance abuse to the correctional system have really acknowledged the effect of trauma on the folks that they're coming into contact with. And so the first thing is, is to not re-traumatize folks. So that's the first part of trauma-informed policies is to make 
whatever contact they have either with the police or with um, some kind of school disciplinary issues maybe or child welfare investigations to make those exchanges as low trauma as possible. Okay, so we see like in Oklahoma City, they have trauma-informed policing. And they, and so anytime a child is on scene, when something traumatic happens, like their parent is taken into custody, or they see a horrific car accident, or they were witness some kind of a violent assault, that that activates a partnership between the Oklahoma City Police Department and the Oklahoma City Public Schools. And so these, um, the Oklahoma City Police Department flags that kid and then the school gets the flag and then identifies which school that kid goes to and um, his or her principal gets a notification that, you know, Sally Jones, uh, you know, was a trauma-exposed child last night. So if she's not present in school today or if she's present and she's having issues, um, it's called handle with care. Handle, handle her with care. And so, again, to not re-traumatize, instead of just berating her because she's falling asleep in class, because she was up all night, because her dad was taken to, to jail, um, or, you know, something happened with the child abuse in the home or intimate violence in the home or something. So a lot of these trauma-informed policies are really important, and they're spreading throughout the criminal justice system and the child welfare systems. And they're really helping to mitigate um, subsequent trauma by these formal institutions so that kids are handled more gently. Um, and adults, I mean, it's, it's, it, it really gained a foothold with kids and juveniles because we love kids and juveniles, right? Um, but it's starting to trickle into uh, adults too, especially when we're looking at substance abuse treatments. Yeah, to sort of help heal past wounds, you know, so that new behaviors, because the new behaviors can't take root until the, the past traumas are addressed. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So I want, I want to turn now to some of the research you were conducting about a year ago now, before the pandemic, you were conducting research at the Mabel Bassett Correctional Center um, in Oklahoma. I just wanted to, you've had now a year to reflect um, as everything's been shut down. What did that experience of researching in a prison, especially at the onset of a pandemic and a shutdown, teach you or show you? Yeah, thanks. It's um, we're working on a paper right now. We're we're hoping to get our first paper out of that project under review sometime in April. And what um, we intended to do was an evaluation. There's a national program called Inside Out, and it's been in existence thirty years or more. And um, it, this Inside Out program pairs um, an equal number of students who are university students with incarcerated students. And it takes place in a carceral setting, so either in a jail or in a prison. And it is, um, takes place among adults. And um, it's been male and female, uh, so male prisons and jails and, and female prisons and jails. And and there's been plenty of evaluations and all that kind of work has been done before. But what we wanted to look at, we wanted to look at how some of these high impact learning experiences like that are supposed to really in higher education, we've been talking about these high impact learning experiences that are supposed to increase graduation rates, um, increase uh, student satisfaction with their schooling 
increase retention rates, keep kids, you know, not kids or adults, keep university students enrolled in their classes and returning. And we said, well, wait, this inside out program is a high impact learning experience because it's supposed to foster criminal uh, critical thinking. It's supposed to foster fear, uh, peer to peer learning. Here I said criminal and fear. That was really bad. Two things. Peer-to-peer learning and um, critical thinking. And it's supposed to foster an appreciation for diverse viewpoints and experiences. This is the Inside Out program. Well, these are all criteria of these high-impact learning experiences that are supposed to work really well for traditional college students. We said, well, nobody's really looked at incarcerated students as learners as students, we only look at carceral education to prevent institutional misconduct, so to keep them out of trouble while they're incarcerated, or to improve their reentry experiences, basically to help them get a job. We never look at incarcerated students as students, and we never assess whether the class is, is meeting their learning goals, is, is um, developing them as learners and, um, and, you know, college level learners. And so we really wanted to do that. And so that was the goal of the whole project. And so we set out and we had uh, the blessing of the warden. Their staff was awesome. They were super accommodating, really, really helpful. They welcomed us in. Um, They wanted the research to happen. And um, our IRB thought it was really great. And so we passed through all of our institutional hurdles and we were supposed to do observations, journal entries um, by the enrolled students if they chose, just about sort of their class reflections, how each class was going, any challenges they were having and maybe challenges that they were having from other students or personal educational challenges. We were supposed to do that for 15 weeks, classes 15 weeks long, and we only got seven weeks in because of the pandemic. And unfortunately, um, we lost two other um, observational periods because the Prison and Parole Board, Pardon and Parole Board, was um, meeting in our space on one class period. So we weren't able to find another space. So we weren't able to hold class that day. And then all of the um, correctional institutions in Oklahoma went on a lockdown because of a riot at a men's prison last year. And so we lost two class periods anyway, and then everything shut down. And when it shut down, when the pandemic shut down, we at OU pivoted to online instruction, but at Mabel Bassett, um, they had no visitors. And so visitation didn't open up until the summer. And so there was no way um, to conduct the class. And unfortunately, the students who are enrolled in Inside Out at Mabel Bassett don't get credit for their college class either. And that's not an Inside Out problem, and it was not necessarily a Mabel Bassett issue either. So, um, but that being said, it made it easy to just kind of cancel the program and say, when the pandemic's over and the lockdown, all of this is lifted, you guys can enroll again in terms of the incarcerated women. So we were just left with an unfinished study and 
and never knowing what happened with any of the women who were enrolled in the class. Um, we were never able to do an exit interview with them or an exit survey. We had a pre and, and post course survey planned. So we have all the pre-survey from all the enrolled students, but we don't. We only have post-survey data from the university students. And then the university students were able to complete the rest of the requirements of the class online. So, I mean, for us, it really highlights the inequality here, you know, and the access to resources that, um, but, you know, students at Mabel Bassett, they take telecourses. They have, um, they have, like, uh, video conferencing courses. They take correspondence courses. There were potential workarounds, but this class didn't carry any credit for them. So I think that that worked against um, the ability to sort of engage in workarounds so that the in, you know, Mabel Bassett students were able to finish the course. So it was really disappointing, but it really did highlight that, you know, we're not all in the same boat, as they say. We were in two different boats in the pandemic. They were in the Mabel Bassett prison boat and we were in the free world working over Zoom boat. So it's a different reality for both groups. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely highlights those two realities. And you say it's just easy to cancel the class. If there's no credit, it's, it's the easiest thing to do with out recognizing the ramifications, I guess, for the folks that were involved. But that's such an important, I'm, I'm surprised that that question you're asking about looking at these inside out, the inside learners as learners hadn't been asked. Nope, nope. They're looked at as inmates first, you know, that's their master status and student second. And the learning is just in service to decreasing their criminal activity inside the prison and outside the prison when they get out. I mean, that's really where the whole focus of correctional education and evaluation of correctional education programs is. It's not on their, for the most part, it's really not on their learning outcomes. And, you know, we study university students to death over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And their learning goals are, you know, we know that stuff over and over and over. You know, there's obviously whole departments devoted to higher education, the study of higher education and learning. But we, when that higher education happens in a carceral environment, it flips to their master status of, of incarcerated person, not learner. Yeah, that the education serves their status as an inmate as opposed to in the university, the education serving for intellectual stimulation. Um, so on that note, I, wa I want to ask the closing question, which I ask to everyone um, who's kind enough to sit for an interview. What gives you hope today? Ah, that's a great question. You know, I am, I used to be a pretty jaded academic who looked at these really negative things like child abuse and child neglect. And, you know, you do that research for enough years and you start to get a dim view of whether lives can really be improved. But I am so much more encouraged by the adoption of so many of these trauma-informed services and trauma-informed programs 
across so many different public serving institutions that I really do feel very hopeful and encouraged, you know, by institutions like policing to schools and disciplinary decisions in schools to trauma-informed judicial decisions and correctional policies. So I do really feel like acknowledging we're at a moment historically where um, these public-facing institutions are acknowledging that a lot of people coming through their doors have been heavily traumatized in their lives, which is, is really feeding the groundwork for why they're behaving the way they do, whether it's in substance abuse or it's in mental health problems or it's in criminal behavior. So I'm very encouraged by that. And I think we're definitely on the, the, the right track with these trauma-informed programs. Good, good. I like that. I appreciate that. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. This has been really interesting. Um, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. Awesome. And Thanks. Thank I, appreciate, you all. I appreciate being invited. Yeah, and thank you all for listening to the latest episode of Carceral Studies Conversations. Follow us on Twitter and look out for the next episode.